When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode featuring former Secretary of State for International Development, Andrew Mitchell. He was absolutely superb, as you would imagine, and told us some phenomenal stories. I knew he was going to be good, but you're never quite sure exactly what you're going to get out of someone. And I knew that we would talk, obviously, about uh, his experiences with the police, but there were so many other things that we talked about. And what you really get the sense of with him is how passionate he is about international development. And that was a big part of his life. It's still a big part of his life. And uh, it was just wonderful. It's always good when you hear... Conservative say counterintuitive things. Well, when you hear any politician talk about things that aren't necessarily heartland issues, and for him, that's clearly a really big deal, and it was uh, it was wonderful to hear about. He's got some incredible stories. I mean, he's clearly someone who's got tons of stories and knows how to tell them. So I sort of feel like we didn't get the entire... There's just so many more things we could have got out of him, but he's got a great story about his friendship with Jeremy Corbyn, about he's got loads on Boris. It's absolutely wonderful. He's really funny. Um... But he's also very dignified and very thoughtful. So, so it's, uh, it covers all bases, really. He was superb. So I should... Oh, before we do... I was... It's always so messy, these introductions. But because I have a load of things that I need to say. Um, you can buy tickets to my new Edinburgh show, Brexit, through the gift shop, through the Edinburgh Festival website, edfringe.com. And tickets for forthcoming political parties are also available on the Other Palace website. Um, and I'll be doing a couple from Edinburgh while I'm up there. One of which will be with John Swinney, the former leader of the Scottish National Party, which I'm very, very excited about. But for now, I will leave you uh, with the show recorded this week at the Other Palace Theatre with Andrew Mitchell. Good evening. Thank you very much. Welcome to the show. Hello, welcome to the show. Give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yay! Can you this is your first time? Welcome newcomers, welcome newcomers. Well, I haven't seen a crowd this big since Labour Live. <laughs> what an honour it is to perform in front of 13,000 people. Uh, but you all paid for your tickets, which is nice, so thanks for coming. Uh, I don't know if people saw uh, what happened at Labour Live. They, they reckon 13,000 people went to the... Uh... Does anyone here go to it? No, good. No, that's right. That's the correct answer. 13,000 people were there. They gave away 12,500 free tickets. So it's not quite, you can't count everyone. A lot of people were just walking through the park. I don't think it was, a couple of doggers got counted in the statistics. Uh, and it must have been such a bizarre... To go to a political festival must have been slightly surreal. Because when you go to Glastonbury or V or Reading or whatever, there's always that discussion you have to have about your red lines. You might go and see Springsteen and then if you want to see Kasabian, we'll miss out on Ed Sheeran or something like that. You know, Labour Live. 
Can you imagine? Well, I've seen Len McCluskey five times already this year. So. <laughs> I've seen Diana 30 times. Yeah, I know, but she always does some new stuff. It's quite exciting. <laughs> that as well, like the set list. I mean, people want to hear the, the classics, don't they? Jeremy's on, they're like, fucking hell, I hope he saves Iraq till last. <laughs> Maybe he saves it for the encore. Yeah, I didn't like the new stuff. He did a load of stuff on automation. It didn't really go for me, to be honest. But when he starts talking about war criminals, I mean, that was great. It was war criminals, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then the, uh, just the West in general, and that was, uh, that was absolutely wonderful. And very much like last time, you know, people scaling the fences uh, to get out. Uh, <laughs> real problem at Labour Life, a lot of people leave. Uh, and and like, any, like any festival, you know, there, there was the opportunity to have a mind-altering experience, uh, watching Diane Abbott give a speech on statistics. It was real, real mind-bending stuff. Uh, there was a healing tent where you could get rid of all your 1997 memorabilia and fully, <laughs> fully cleanse your soul. Uh, and now a lot of people have said, and obviously I'm saying, you can take the piss out of it all you like, that the centrists couldn't put on a festival like this. Um, they're probably right. Although Kendall Calling's sold out for the last five years, so... <laughs> they're doing something right. The 4.5%, obviously big ticket buyers, but... Uh, the main frustration I had with it was that it was a vanity project. It was like Jeremy Corbyn putting on a festival for himself. It wasn't about ideas. He wanted a big moment in front of a crowd. Basically, what happened was he went to Glastonbury last year. He got a massive reception and thought, you know what, we should, we should do this every year now. The problem is, is that Glastonbury is its own festival. It sells out even before the musicians are announced. And he has misunderstood why that festival existed and what he got out of it. Now, I've tried to understand... What would the equivalent of that be in any other field? And the only example I can think of is, it's like a streaker at a football match. Because it's not the event that everyone's there for, but it's happened, and while it's happened, everyone's gone, hey! It'd be like a streaker coming off going, fucking hell, that went well. I reckon, I reckon I should put, I reckon my dick needs its own festival next year. I think we should pay 35 quid to look at my dick. I'll chuck you Owen Jones as well, so two dicks for the price of Ooh. Uh, of course, the big political story this week has been the vote on Heathrow. Uh, Boris Johnson was absent for it, having previously said that he would lie in front of bulldozers. Um, although, you know, I'd lied in front of a bus, I'd lied in front of buildings, so why should I not <laughs> lie in front of... <laughs> he actually said, because obviously had he been here and he'd have voted against the three-line whip, he would have had to resign from the government. He said, Look, all these people saying that I should have resigned Look, if I had resigned, it wouldn't have achieved anything. Um, it's slightly wrong, because there would have been one less cunt in government, so it would, <laughs> would have achieved something, perhaps. And I don't think him lying in front of a bulldozer would stop the bulldozer. I think it would have been counterproductive. I think, if anything, is guaranteed to speed a bulldozer up. <laughs> Boris Johnson lying in front of it. Find an extra five miles an hour. Uh, he obviously went um, to Afghanistan. Uh, it was got as further away as he possibly could. Um, he's obviously there on a fact-finding mission um, to Afghanistan. He was there on a fact-finding mission uh, to our friends in Afghanistan. Uh, obviously to find out what Britain will look like post-Brexit. Uh, that'd be quite nice. Uh, I was half surprised he didn't release a bit of propaganda from a cave. We must rise up amongst these, against these Ramona bedwetting scum. Uh, yeah, hallelujah snack bar or whatever it is those chappies say. I, uh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of people say, don't they, you know, it's, um, in a stressful situation, it's fight or flight. Um, he took that very literally uh, and, and booked one. Uh, it's fight, flight, faint or freeze, isn't it? Fight, flight, faint or freeze, or fuck off out the country like a pussy. Uh, which is, 
which is what Boris did. Um, I mean, of all the problems that I have with it is, this is a man who has ambitions to be Prime Minister and could conceivably be Prime Minister perhaps even before the end of the year or before the summer's out. Now, you cannot evade major matters of state in the way that he has done if you're Prime Minister. I would like to urge the House at this solemn time to realise that it falls to this generation to stand up against the greatest menace since the Second World War with a heavy heart, Mr Speaker, I recommend that for a first time in our history we launch a nuclear attack <laughs> and not just on anyone but on our greatest ally, the United States. Oh, sorry, is that five o'clock? I've got a dinner meeting, actually. I'm just going <laughs> to... Yeah, I didn't quite deliver that properly, did I? I think it would have helped had I carried on doing it in his voice. Get the fuck off out of here. Well, on the podcast, there'll be a big laugh on that, so that'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> No one, know, no, one, no one will know any different. He also said, but apparently concerns raised by Airbus, Unipart, and today Nissan, um, what we should do about business, apparently uh, in a meeting of uh, finance ministers in Europe, Boris simply said, fuck business. Uh, now, if there's anyone who knows about the fuck business, it's someone who's had three affairs and a love charm. <laughs> so he's, he's well-versed. He also said, we don't want to end up with some sort of bog roll Brexit. Um, God knows what bog roll Brexit means. Probably it starts with us getting ripped off, clearing up a load of shaft, a load of arseholes, and getting flushed down the pan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Loves a bit of wordplay. Uh, there's been an NHS splurge announced. Theresa May has announced she will spend an extra £20 billion a year on the NHS by 2023 for its 70th birthday. Now, its 70th birthday is this year, so it's going to get it late. Um, so I'm a bit pissed off if I get a card a day late, to be honest. Let alone a cash injection. For 20 billion quid, although 20 billion quid must probably shut me up. Uh, she said she's going to pay for it with a Brexit dividend. Now, as everyone in this room knows, there is no such thing as a Brexit dividend. It does not exist. The IFS says we'll be £15 billion a year worse off every year as a result of Brexit. Brexit dividend basically means no money. It means minus money. Saying you're going to pay for something with Brexit dividend is... I mean, I think that will end to the parlance as, like, meaning skin. We say, yeah, I can't come out this weekend, mate. I've had a Brexit dividend. You know, fuck. <laughs> I'm on the bones of my ass, mate. Yeah. I'm not sure I'll make it out till Christmas, to be honest. It's really... 15 billion, if you must know. Yeah, it's fucking nightmare. So, she then said, she altered that, said, actually, we'll pay for it with taxes, borrowing, and a Brexit dividend. And the last bit is, basically, you're saying that you've got no money left. Like, it's a joke. It'd be like splitting a bill in a restaurant, going, yeah, can we split it three ways, mate? Yeah, we'll put the first 20 on that card, yeah. We'll do 20 cash, and for the last 20, just go, fuck yourself. <laughs> How's that sound? But Kevin Williamson has said he wants to, he needs two billion pounds a year just to stand still. He's thinking, here, Southern Rail. Uh, <laughs> the problem is, the problem is with Gavin Williamson, he's, when, you, when you read about Williamson in print, he sounds tough and hard. Williamson, Russia should shut up and go home. Williamson, I demand two billion pounds to keep the Prime Minister in Downing Street. When you actually hear him say it, any sort of threat is immediately evaporated. We need two billion pounds a year extra, and if the Prime Minister doesn't give it me, oh, God, blimey, there'll be trouble, I'm telling you. Oh, don't push me, mate, because I'm, I'm this far from going, I am, yeah. Oh, quite. anyway, I've got to be up early, so I'm going to duck out of this van. I want two billion pounds a year and a bloody massive laser gun and all, yeah. My dad's going to come down in a bit anyway, he'll batter all of you, see, so it's incredible. Uh, it, this, uh, this is the latest of uh, numerous ministers have threatened to resign. David Davis uh, threatened to resign over the border issue and then was talked out of it uh, when a backstop deal was, was agreed. This is the fifth time that David Davis has threatened to resign from the government and hasn't. Um, 
eventually you have to follow it. It's like a sort of poor bloke <laughs> getting into a fight who will never follow through. You touch me one more time, mate. I all right, yeah, two more times, and I swear to God, I'm this close. Mate, you fucking, you're pushing your luck, mate. I'm like, all right, stop touching me, but I swear to God. One of the other times, by the way, that he threatened to resign, the second time he threatened to resign and didn't, was over Damien Green. Damien Green, remember, uh, the minister was accused of basically wanking at work. Um, <laughs> David Davis was prepared to die on that hill. If he goes, I go. <laughs> David in great like all. So if nothing else, actually, it shows you what a good friend David Davis. Because if I was asked to defend any of my mates from wanking at work, I don't say I could hand on heart actually do it. <laughs> Steve, absolutely no way. It's all over the screen, is it? I stand corrected. Brexit is in the hands of a man who thinks that men don't masturbate. It's, uh, it's very scary. The doomsday briefing that uh, Mr. Davis had to commission was leaked to the Sunday Times. And in the second best scenario of Brexit, the port of Dover collapses on day one. <laughs> of all the ports, the most patriotic port. And the RAF, are, hospitals close, and the RAF, are, uh, 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 they get involved. The, the RAF, <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? Dragooned is a great word. The only ever dragooned in to deliver. Do you work in newspapers? Because that was brilliant. Medical supplies uh, and, and food within two days. Food shortages. And so, you know, elderly relatives probably are going to die. Um, but you get your milk dropped off by the Red Arrows. So it's sort of <laughs> quite exciting, actually, isn't it? When you think about it. Uh, the, the doomsday uh, briefing uh, also reveals that, depending on how hard the Brexit is, uh, GDP will be cut by over 3, 5 or 8%. So that's the choice of being given, sort of what sort of recession would you like. Um, this sort of illusion of choice. So that's been, it's like being asked to choose your own method of torture, as if though that's like a, a choice any of us would want in the first place. Where you can have your dicks cut off, set on fire and stuffed up your ass. you can have your ass cut off, set on fire and stuffed on your dick. So which is it? Oh, cheers, yeah. Oh, the Tories, obviously, have, have, have got a bespoke deal. They're just going to cut their own cock off, and they're very happy. <laughs> Taking back control over the whole process. Uh, and uh, William Hague, you may have seen, has said that we should legalise weed. Uh, <laughs> someone's way ahead of me already. Um, which, I mean, a lot of people speculating whether he would have used it in the past. I mean, it would explain his voice. Sort of, I don't know. I don't know. He said, uh, he said, well, apparently, cannabis use is ubiquitous. Everyone is doing it. Uh, which sounds more like a, a young lad trying to convince his mum that he should be allowed again, doesn't it? It's ubiquitous, mother. It's everywhere. Even Jeremy did some at Glastonbury. Please let me have some. A lot of people speculate as to whether he would have had it. He was a man who wanted Geoffrey Archer to be London Mayor. I'll leave that with you whether you think Hague was getting high in his own supply. Uh, Vince Cable, uh, obviously annoyed that the Tories were on his turf uh, as Wade said, oh, no, 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 this is very safe. Cannabis use is a big problem. It can cause, it can cause uh, delinquency uh, in young people. Uh, so we would, we would support its use because it's frankly the only way we're going to get people to vote for us. So fully in favour of, of more age groups, frankly. If anyone wants some Colombian hash, I'll be outside in five minutes. <laughs> And of course, the biggest news really of the month was Donald Trump meeting Kim Jong-un, which I've always thought, you know what? American presidents need to make peace with North Korea. And I would love to see the day that an American president sits down next to a North Korean leader until it happens. And then you go, what the fuck? <laughs> what have we done? Because when you see them together, you think, 
they shouldn't be hanging, they'd have got separated at school. <laughs> they shouldn't be hanging together now. And the thing is, whenever you, whenever you have a Western leader or a leader of democracy meet the leader of a country like North Korea, you want them to lobby on behalf of human rights and things like that. Trump's not going to give a shit. Trump's going to go over there, get to get ideas. <laughs> so let me get this absolutely right. You don't even need to get elected over here. I like you people, great people. They're very good people, North Korean people, they totally understand. And you can, people just disappear if you agree with, if you disagree, I like the sound of this guy. You would find the positives in anyone in a sort of childish, quite naive way. You could be anyone. I met Vlad the Impaler, and I gotta tell you, he has got, very strong man, very strong man. He has the, very strong man. And you, sometimes you need to be strong in these places, and he understands that he's a good man. He does the best kebabs I've ever had. Big long skewers, loads of meat. He's a good guy, very strong people. I do worry about it. Um, let's not worry too much about the state of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, uh, you've been a fantastic audience. In the second half today, we will have a wonderful guest, a man I've wanted to interview for a very long time. It's good to have a cat, that's my catchphrase. And um, I think the hour's gonna fly by. So if you've got any questions you would like to ask Andrew Mitchell, do have a think at the end of the second section, I will come to the audience, and as always, uh, you get to chip in at the end. But for now, as always, thank you for being a wonderful audience. I've been Matt Ford, see you in a bit. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the uh, to the second part of the show. Tonight's guest is someone uh, that I have wanted to interview for a very long time, and I've been trying to interview. And I've been trying to interview for a very long time. Uh, known perhaps for a moment of controversy, but also respecting the political world, and we will talk about it. Uh, respecting the political world, particularly for his work on development issues that has continued since he was Secretary of State for International Development. One of the most recognisable faces of the coalition years and of the Cameron government a linchpin of the Conservative Party, the man who ran David Davis's 2005 leadership campaign. Please give a huge welcome to the wonderful Andrew Mitchell. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to have you here. I mentioned David Davis there. I mean, is it fair to say that you are, are you best mates? Yeah, I think we are, really. There aren't many uh, genuine friendships in, in politics. I think that's, that's a truism. But he and I have known each other for quite a long time. I ran his leadership campaign in 2005 rather badly. And uh, <laughs> I, we came second. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, no, he's a very good friend of mine. We've been, we've been friends since we were whips together, actually. We both came into the House of Commons in 1987. So we were both in the whips office at ni in 92. And 93, when the Maastricht uh, legislation was going through. And there was, again, a lot of turbulence in the Tory party. And I sometimes walk into the chamber now and I see Bill Cash or uh, uh, Bernard Jenkin or one of the Duncan Brexiteers, Smith. Duncan Smith. One of the bastards. Duncan Smith, I was his whip, actually, Duncan Smith. And uh, I see them and I get a sort of sense of deja vu because they're still <laughs> saying the same things. They were saying in 1992, 1993, 25 years ago. So what should we let, I mean, the Whip's office is a phenomenal uh, house of drama, really. It was the, the great play, This House. I'm not sure if you went to see that. I the, did, yes. Uh, really encapsulated the nuts and bolts of Whip's. What everyone always thinks of Whip's is basically tough guys. Well, you, did you have to be tough? I mean, back in the 90s, doing it for Major must have been like almost the peak of the old school Whip. 
Well, it was very tight. We used to we used to say that if we got a majority of five, it was a landslide, and you'd have, you know, you'd have you'd have. Paul you'd... says a similar thing. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now, if they get much below twenty, they get frightfully worried. But the 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 uh, late at night, you know, we'd win by two or three and voting at two or three in the morning, um, and it, it was incredibly tight. And you know, whipping is now much more difficult than it was then. But the, the, it's a myth, actually, that uh, this sort of house of cards stuff about how it's, it's thuggery. I remember one occasion where, where, um, where we had a particularly difficult person who was refusing to support the government. And uh, one of the quarter uh, whips said, um, you know, he's my best friend. I know what I'll do. And he went to see him and he said to him, uh, with tears in his eyes, he said, listen, if you don't support the government tonight, they're going to fire me because they think I'm such an ineffective whip. I can't even get my best friend to vote. And the silly idiot did vote with the government. <laughs> so there, there are plenty of different ways of, 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 uh, of uh, skinning the cat. There's only so many, you can only do that once though, can't you? Yes. Come on the following week, you're never going to believe it. Wow. So, but did you, was it, because the, the, the cliche of a whip of maybe that era, and maybe slightly before, is that sometimes it was physical, um, that it was, you know, involved intelligence on your fellow MPs, that you would threaten to tell people's families about what they were up to, or their constituency party. Was that part of it as well? Well, there was, um, uh, there was a, there was a, a, a fellow <laughs> who, uh, who, was supposed to be there at two o'clock in the morning, and he wasn't there. And I was his whip. I rang his wife, and I said, "You know, where is this fellow?" And she said, oh, "He's in the House of Commons." <laughs> so I knew he wasn't in the House of Commons. And I said, "Oh well, that kiss will go and find him. Thank you very much." And I went round and found him. And the next day, he came into the office, and he said, "Thank you so much for not saying I wasn't here last night. I'm so grateful to you." And I said, yes, and now you vote with the government on every single debate <laughs> for the rest of the Maastricht debates uh, because of what we did. It's amazing how you remember those first meetings with Boris, isn't it? Really... <laughs> 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 you stay with it. I mean, it's, it's all about whipping. You know, how does a chief whip deal with Boris Johnson being out of the country? Well, fortunately, there is only one Boris. And uh, he, he habitually gets away with murder, as you referred to in your, in your, in your brilliant uh, opening comments. Um, but there is only one of them, and he is able to do things that no one else in politics can possibly do and get away with. And how he's got away with uh, going to, to meet the deputy foreign minister of Afghanistan <laughs> on a, a hugely expensive taxpayer-paid flight all the way there and all the way back in order to avoid... Uh, doing a decent thing over Heathrow. I simply cannot imagine. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the mood on the Tory benches when this, when this story was developing? Are people sort of, do people think good on him, or has he lost the respect of some of his fellow MPs there? Well, I think, I think he has lost a bit of respect, actually. I think he's... he's, uh, he's because he gets away with all this sort of bluster. But, but actually, he's a very, very intelligent, clever bloke, and he knows about collective responsibility, shredded collective responsibility. And, uh, you know, the, the, the cabinet today is in a very odd place because they, there's no sort of cohesion about it. Everyone's saying what they think, and it makes life extremely difficult. How does it test those relationships? So Ian Duncan Smith is someone that you had to deal with when he was making Major's life hell, helping bring down a, a popular Conservative Prime Minister. Fast forward a few years, you're then round the cabinet table with him. Do those relationships repair, or does that, does that divide still prevail? I think they, they, they repair. You know, relationships do repair, um, and you're on the opposite side on issues and on people and so on. 
and, and they do repair. I mean, I was his whip, and certainly when, when he was uh, done in as leader of the party, he sort of blamed the old Maastricht whips for, for doing him in. But it wasn't really true. I mean, I think it wasn't working, and the Tory party, utterly ruthless on these occasions, decided he had to go and he went. Well, the ruthless with Ian Duncan Smith, what's fascinating is watching Theresa May, because it feels like she doesn't really command the authority in the party, let alone in the country, and yet she continues to sit there. I mean, what, what's the view on the, amongst the parliamentary party about how long you would like her to stay? Well, she, she said rather nobly that she would stay as long as we wanted her. I think it's very unlikely the Tory party will want her to fight another election, <laughs> uh, given what happened last year. But She, she, didn't, but, she didn't fight that one. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a great moment. But, the, but um, you know, the, the case for Theresa May is basically she kicks the can down the road. She avoids making a decision. And actually, you know, if you had a party leader like Mrs Thatcher, Ken Clark, David Davis, you know, someone who was leading from the front, it might break the Conservative Party at the moment, because we simply don't agree on Europe. And we're getting ourselves into a very, very difficult place. You know, you can't say, fuck business. Um, and, you know, business is what, what, what employs our constituents. Their investment means that our constituents have jobs and are able to pay taxes and so on. I mean, this is, this is a very difficult uh, uh, time. But, but maybe the fact that she kicks the can down the road and she doesn't provide that sort of leadership because it cannot be provided, you know, maybe that's the way through. <laughs> doesn't feel like it, but maybe it is. It must feel weird. I mean, fuck business. Not only is it disrespectful, but the Tory party is the party of business. It would be like, it would be like Jeremy Corbyn saying, you know, fuck anti-Semitism. You know, it would go against... <laughs> <laughs> Go against everything that the leadership stands for. <laughs> very strange. I know him quite well, you know, Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn? Mm. How do you know him well? I'll tell you, I'll tell you how. It's, a, it's an odd story. But, but Jeremy Corbyn, um, David Davis, I and a, a Labour lawyer called Andy Slaughter, who's a member of Parliament for Hammersmith, yes. the four of us went to America to get the last British detainee out of Guantanamo Bay. His, his name was Shaka Armour, he lives in Battersea. And Cameron had tried several times to, to, to get him out, but the Department of Defence wouldn't release him. So, so an all-party group was formed, and the all-party group, the chairman of the all-party group was John McDonnell. The two deputy chairmen were David Davis and Jeremy Corbyn, and I was the secretary. And this extraordinary sort of odd group of people who have absolutely nothing in common at all, apart from the wish to get Shaka Armour back. And so we headed off to to the US and we had some brutal meetings with the, the officials. And we had a very good dinner actually at this, on this occasion where, where uh, Jeremy doesn't drink, but he's an expert on cheese, so he ordered the cheese. <laughs> and uh, and, and David and I are absolutely clear. This, so this is July 2015, when Ed Miliband has resigned and they're waiting to decide on the leadership. And Davis and I are quite clear about this. I said to Jeremy, are you going to run? And he said, no, it's, it's Diane's turn, or it's John's turn, one or, one or the other. And so when they had the caucus meeting, um, the, uh, 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 John was ill, and Diane said she wouldn't do it. So eventually Jeremy said, well, I'm going to have to do it. And then he, he, he put his name forward, and within three minutes of the close of the nominations, Margaret Beckett added the final name. Margaret Beckett, who is not a left-winger, and certainly not a Corbyn 
support it in the interests of getting him on the ballot paper. And then a, a month later, he was, he, was, he was the leader of the Labour Party. But when we were there uh, getting uh, this bloke out, um, uh, he, he was not going to run, and that was just a few months before. And, and so we made our case, and we had such an objectionable meeting with the government, a wonderful meeting with John McCain, actually, this war, yeah. Vietnam War veteran who's now sadly got uh, uh, um, uh, brain cancer. Um, but uh, and we had a very good meeting with him, who really was on our side. But we had this brutal meeting with, with the administration, and I think they let him out a month later. And I think the main reason they let him out because they didn't want another visit from Messrs Corbyn, Mitchell, and Davis. <laughs> <laughs> so what was he like socially? Do you all get the flight together? Well, for some extraordinary reason, uh, the Labour Party were put in business class, and we were, and no Davis, and Davis and I were at the back of the plane. <laughs> <laughs> It was Andy who went uh, with, with Jeremy, who came across with uh, Jeremy. And um, <laughs> then we got to the hotel, and Davis and I were given um, perfectly good rooms. Yeah. But, but Corbyn was put in the honeymoon suite at the top of the hotel. <laughs> So, so, so we, re we reckon our hosts were making a point about how they voted, or who they, who they liked, how they believed. Maybe the Americans have been pulling the strings and not the Russians then. Maybe they sort of saw this. That's incredible. And because I think it's reasonable to say that some Corbyn supporters would say Jeremy's the sort of person who would say no to first class. No, no, I'm not saying that he flew first class. Sorry, flew saying... business class. Flew business class. Well, I think you know, that's where he, where he was put. <laughs> Fuck business class. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And what was he like? Did you did you go out for a meal on the night or? Yeah, yeah. No, he was he was good company. He was good company. But I'll tell you something that I learnt working with John McDonnell on this all-party group is that John McDonnell is something else. He is a brilliant organiser. Yeah, yes. And you know, I say to people who say, oh, we don't, we're very worried about Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister, I say, the one you've really got to worry about is John McDonnell. Because I think John would openly say that he is a Marxist. He believes in a totally different form of society. And you know, having worked with him and Jeremy, I would say that you know, John, is, John is something else. And were they, but were they, were they civil with you? Because obviously they, they sort of generate yes. this opinion that, or this image rather, that they, these are sort of almost a vanguard, uh, hard left individuals, and Tories not to be tolerated, let alone you know befriended. But actually, he, he can be civil and he can be charming, can he? No, I mean it's on issues really. It's often it's often true that that um, uh, politicians form friendships across the house. I mean not not as much as as you might think, but there are friendships across the house. And of course, there are alliances on issues. Margaret Hodge and I have been working together to make the overseas territories adopt open registers of ownership, because there's immense amounts of money that is stolen from Africa and from Africans and that is thieved around the world. And because of secrecy, we can't find out about it. And you may remember the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers showed up all of this. And so uh, we actually, we defeated the government, but the government caved in before the vote because they knew that they would lose. It was slightly embarrassing for me as a former chief whip to <laughs> try and engineer the defeat of my own, my own party, my own government. But, but uh, you know, she and I work uh, together and we're now trying to make sure that the Crown Dependencies, Guernsey, Jersey and the Isle of Man uh, do the same thing, introduce these open registers, which they are 
they are resisting. In fact, Dame Margaret and I went off to the Isle of Man last week, and they all thought that she was a Tory because she's a dame, and that I was the Corp Minister. <laughs> <laughs> because you're well spoken. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> It's just a fascinating insight into Corbyn, that, because of all the people I was going to ask you about, Corbyn wouldn't have been near the top of the list. The person I really wanted to ask you about, obviously, was, was David Davis, who ran his campaign. And it must be a very odd friendship, yours, because he is, you know, one of the faces, one of the architects, one of the leaders of Brexit, and you voted to remain in the referendum. Has, has that fault line tested your relationship with him at all? No, because actually, I mean, David and I disagree about quite a lot of things. <laughs> we, 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 and on, when I was doing development, he was a sceptic, although I think I converted him quite a lot into the value of it in, in, in the national interest. Um, uh, but certainly, to begin with, you know, he's very sceptical about, about it all, and particularly about the point seven and so forth. Um, and on Europe, we've always disagreed. And we disagree on plenty of other things as well. He's a right-wing Tory. I'm really... A, I'm the secretary of the One Nation group of Tory MPs. So, so I'm sort of on the, very much in the centre. And he's a, he's a proper Brexiteer. You know, he's always believed in this. And actually, I think that it is a good thing that he is leading the negotiations because I think he is the right politician to do that. He has a strong business experience. He's been a director of a major FTSE company. He was the Europe minister in '97, So, for example, he knows Barnier quite well from all of that. And um, he's, he's an experienced politician. He's been a minister. He's extremely tough. And so he's the right guy to represent... Britain's interests. I mean, it is fantastically difficult, and I can't tell you tonight that I know how this is all going to end, except I think the can's going to be kicked down the road an awful lot more. But, but of the leading politicians, uh, he's the right guy to do it because he's a genuine Brexiteer, and he is, he is very tough. Um, well, he was in the TA. He was. He was an SAS uh, <laughs> member in the TA, which means he knows how to kill people, but only at weekends. <laughs> <laughs> He gives the impression of being slightly cavalier. Is that part of his persona? Is that, is that just a veneer? Or is he, he seems to be flying by the seat of his pants at times. Is he, is he being slightly Boris-esque there in creating that persona? Or is that who he really is? Well, I, I mean, I always say about it, he's got a brain like a steel trap. He's almost entirely self-taught. Um, he was one of the early graduates on computers, for example. So, so when he went off to Warwick University. But... He, as is well known, he had a legendary tough upbringing. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he has taught himself, and he is, he is, in my view, extremely clever. Um, but Boris has a sort of natural, uh, rather arrogant intelligence. Um, and, and, and Davis certainly is a know-it-all. But, but, but the truth is, I remember once saying to him uh, uh, some quote, and I said, uh, I think by Thomas of Aquinas. And he said, no, 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 it's not, it's St Augustine. And I thought, I bet it isn't. <laughs> He's just being a, a, a clever dick, and I went away and looked it up, and sure enough, he was right. <laughs> what a shit! Oh, what a shame! Because with, 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 what's your relationship like with Boris? Well, I put Boris on the candidates list in 1992, and uh, oh, he God. was he was uh, he was yes, I did, and he was <laughs> he was he was irritating John Major immensely because at that stage he was in Brussels and he was writing articles about how, how John Major supported uh, straightening out bananas and cucumbers and so yeah. on, and, and, and driving Major mad with these articles he wrote in the, in the Telegraph. So when, when, I, when he was put on the list, and I was the vice chairman of the party responsible for candidates, Major complained about this. And, and I said, well, you know, you, 
it's not my job to make windows into people's cells. He's a Tory, so he's on the list. But I have extracted a promise from him that he will not uh, put in for a safe seat, uh, and in particular on Europe at the time, uh, which was the seats which were being selected. And I got into central office uh, a few mornings later, and sure enough, there was the list of applications for a safe seat, and there was one Boris Johnson on it. <laughs> so I rang him up and said, um, Boris, I, th I think I'm right in saying you promised me that you would not apply for a, a safe seat. No, did, did, did I? Crikey, crikey, crikey. And uh, anyway, so he didn't then stand for it, and he went off and fought a seat, a European seat in, in Wales, but the Welsh fought back. <laughs> Good Major. I, I was always a huge fan of Major, even though I probably never would have voted for him. I was too young when he was, was leader, but I remember getting his autobiography for my 18th birthday. <laughs> 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 I loved him. I, okay. I instinctively felt, even at that age, that he was, a, he was a fundamentally decent bloke, Major. Was he, was he good to work for? Yes, he was. He was... He was incredibly good in small groups, rather less good in, in bigger groups. And he also, he also thought people who'd been to university sort of slightly looked down on him, which they certainly didn't. You know, he was Prime Minister of the United uh, Kingdom. And of course, looking back, he managed the Conservative Party very well on Europe, you know, because he got these two big opt-outs, the social chapter, which would have interfered in our labour laws, and the currency opt-out, the opt-out from monetary union, which sort of drew the teeth of Maastricht, and yet we still had those terrible debates and votes in the House of Commons, mm. which sort of wrecked the Tory party, and we had the biggest landslide against us in 1997 when Tony Blair got elected. So, so he was actually very good, and, and what did him in was this obsession, uh, this cancer of Europe in the Tory party, which did in Mrs Thatcher, did in John Major, did in David Cameron, and is now doing in Theresa May. And it, you know, it, on, on Europe, in the Tory party, in my experience, members of parliament who are utterly sane and good on every other issue just go bonkers on Europe. <laughs> it's hard to see that trend changing, because whatever happens with Brexit, it can be kicked down various roads. If we do eventually leave in whatever form we leave, I mean, it's inconceivable that at some point there wouldn't be a, a huge element of the Conservative Party saying that we should rejoin the European Union or... or, or at some point in the, in the middle distance. Um, in terms of who leads the party next, are there anyone? Who is, who is sort of manoeuvring for it? Oh, there's about 40 people. <laughs> there's, I mean, there are, there, are, there are inevitably, I mean, that's the nature of Parliament. There are yeah. lots of people. But, but, but uh, there isn't a vacancy at the moment. And um, the, 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 the end of Brexit is some way off. And, I mean, I believed that after the last election, she, Mrs May, it would be better if she went and ceased to be leader. But as of today, if she were to try to go tomorrow, we'd have to issue a retaining order. You know, we'd have to make sure that she wasn't allowed out of Downing Street. Because now, for, for, for the Prime Minister to go would be an absolute catastrophe. So she has to stay until this is all, all through. And, you know, she must wake up every morning thinking another, another day, you know, twisting on the in the wind on, on, on this dreadful nightmare which she is going through. But, but there's, no, there's no... I remember William Hague once saying that if you join the, uh, the currency, it's like being in a burning house where there is no exit. The problem is it's very hard to see at the moment how you get out of all of this. Uh, for example, there's a lot of people who believe there should be a second referendum. And I used to think that was not a bad idea. But if you think about it, if there's a second referendum 
and it goes the same way as uh, first time, yeah. then it's an enormous amount of energy for nothing. And if it goes the other way, and if we overturn this democratic vote, then you know, why shouldn't it become the best of three? So, so I don't think, I don't think uh, that another referendum is the answer. And in the end, you know, the, the answer on the Irish border, which is really a serious issue, is um, to do nothing. It's constructive ambiguity. One of the reasons the Anglo-Irish agreement works is because both the nationalists and the, the Ulstermen, the unionists, uh, both interpret it in a slightly different way, so they've both got the bit of what they want, yeah. and it works. And really, that's what's going to have to happen, I think, on, 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 on the border, because it's, it's, it's impossible to see how you escape from this. And in the end, I think it's likely that there will be some sort of fudge and probably a very, very long transition period in the end. What about, though, because what about a referendum on the deal, which is a, a slight different emphasis? You say, we're going to leave, but just... Let's have a referendum on the, de of the terms of our departure. And then it's consistent that people who voted leave would say, actually, that's not the sort of Brexit I want. And obviously, people who voted remain would, would vote it down to try and stop it. So is that, I, I understand why people are sent to vote on the deal and not a rerun of the referendum, because you'd probably lose the referendum. And this, this moves the argument on slightly. But is that something you might support in principle? Well, it's not, it's not impossible. But, but the answer to that depends on what the deal is, that when the deal is struck. And the deal may well be struck quite late. And, of course, we're leaving at the end of March, as things stand, unless an extension on Article 50 uh, is, is secured. So it's, it's quite difficult to see how that would happen. And basically, a referendum is, is a very non-parliamentary approach. I, I, I can't see many, apart from that one, I can't see any circumstances which I'll ever vote for a referendum again, because it's Parliament saying to the public, we're not going to decide this issue, you decide. And having said that... It's quite difficult for Parliament to say, oh, well, you've got it wrong. We're going to take it back again now. So, so given that the referendum, by quite a significant figure, actually, although the percentages were close, the number of votes in the biggest vote ever are significant, I think it's very difficult for, for, for Parliament to say, well, you've got it wrong or you were deceived and, and we're now going to have to vote on the ultimate deal. Although it is true that the deal... No one voted on that originally, and there was the two campaigns, which frankly were frightful in terms of integrity and honesty and so on. Both campaigns, I think, uh, did not elucidate the key thing. I mean, look at the debate on immigration, which was very dishonest on all sides, really. I mean, do you ever, you know, the issue of Europe, as you rightly say, sort of dogged your entire time in the Conservative Party. Does it ever test your faith in the party itself? Do you ever think, I don't want to be in a party with these sort of people anymore? No, not really, but I got all this grey hair with doing the Maastricht whipping in, back in the 1990s. The, 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 uh, and, and I did sort of, it was, you know, when you came up for air at three o'clock in the morning and you looked at your colleagues, you did wonder how on earth they didn't just go and lie down in a darkened room until, the, until this, these extraordinary emotions about Europe had passed, passed, passed. So, so uh, you know, it, it, Europe is the fissure that has run, and David tried to solve it, David Cameron tried to solve it, he believed that if you had a referendum, you could, you could, you could end the Tory nightmare on Europe. He, he always believed he couldn't possibly lose it. Um, but in the end, he was trying to solve a party management issue, yes. really. And uh, I don't think he would... I said at the time uh, that I didn't think that he, he would solve that party management issue by a referendum, although I never believed he wouldn't win it, actually. Mm. So, so uh, you know, that, that was the, the reasoning at the time. What was he like to serve under as a Prime Minister? Oh, he was very good, actually, David. I mean, I had a blessed relationship with him because he and I completely agreed on development. 
And indeed, there were times in Cabinet where, on the point seven and so on, he and I were the only two people who, who, who stood up for that, that principle. So, so, you know, the nightmare is if you don't agree with your leader and you're forever trying to hang on to collective responsibility and not betray what you think. So, so for me, that was absolutely wonderful. And uh, he stood very staunchly behind international development. He believes passionately, in, as I do, in doing something about these colossal discrepancies of opportunity uh, and wealth which disfigure our world today. And he did a huge amount. And you know, I think it's fair to say that DFID, uh, which used to be just across the road there before it moved into, into Whitehall, um, you know, DFID has lost a bit of a wind in its sails at the moment. But it is a very noble cause. And Britain is a leader. You know, in the same way that America is a military superpower, Britain is a development superpower. We, we have the ideas. We have the effort. We have the NGOs, the charities and so on. Who, who do make a huge difference in some of the darkest and most difficult parts of the world. So I found that uh, uh, a blissful relationship. He, and on, on the occasions, which always happens, where Whitehall tried to go behind my back and get me to change something, he always backed me up and always stood, 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 stood on <coughs> first, which was very good. And he was a very good chairman of cabinet. The only person he could never shut up was Ken Clark. And uh, Ken would uh, talk, and uh, you'd, David would drum his fingers on the table. And Ken would notice this and would shoot his cuffs and continue, <laughs> to, continue to speak for a bit longer. Um, but no, he was a very good chairman of cabinet, and he was a very good prime minister. And uh, I think he felt, you know, to the manner born. And uh, I'm, I think that the tragedy for David is that the referendum and Brexit will hang round his neck in the same way that Iraq hangs around the neck of Tony Blair. You mentioned the, the 0.7% there. One well, of the great progressive achievements of David Cameron's Sunday government was to enshrine 0.7% of GDP specifically for, for international development and to ring-fence that. That must have been a very hard argument to win. I mean, it obviously had the promise was an ally, but development anyway in the Tory party isn't a glamorous or sexy issue. Development, spending money on development when there's austerity at home must have been doubly hard to sell. Well, it was, and I sat through cabinet meetings where other budgets were being reduced, feeling sort of quite embarrassed, really. But there was, there was help. That the, 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 it's not just the point seven; it's the rules under which it is spent. And there were things we could do, for example, to help the Home Office, to help Theresa May in the Home Office, dealing uh, with asylum seekers and displaced people, put money into that. So we tried to support wherever we could what was within the, in the rules. But it was, it was difficult. And I'm personally incredibly proud to have served in a government at a time of great austerity that declined to balance the books on the backs of the poorest people in the world and in Britain and stood firm to the commitments we had made. Because the point seven was a promise we had made. And as uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, a, a, a promise like that to the poorest in the world is a sacred promise. And I'm very proud that it was actually a Conservative-led government that finally did what we had promised and introduced the point seven. Controversial that is. It must have been an interesting relationship because you, when you ran David Davis's campaign, it was against David Cameron in 2005. <clears throat> did he ever refer to that? Well, the, 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 uh, what, the reason that was, a, that was potentially an enormously divisive leadership election because, as everyone would appreciate, David Davis and David Cameron are completely different. They're like chalk and cheese. Um, but George Osborne, who is a, a long-standing old friend of mine, he ran David Cameron's campaign and I ran David Davis's. So whenever there was a problem, George and I used to go off and have a drink and try and sort it out. And I'm, I think it would be fair to say that, that was one of the reasons why it wasn't 
that, um, that problematic. But the other reason was we had this terrible party conference where we, we arrived, uh, you know, where he was, he was the, the heir apparent uh, on a Sunday. Yeah. And then there was David Cameron's speech, which was a good speech, but it wasn't as good as the press said. And David Davis's speech, which was not a good speech, but it wasn't as bad as the press said. And the whole thing turned on its head. And so we sort of sculpted out of town <laughs> with our tail between our legs at the end of it. So that's what changed everything. And it changed it so dramatically that in the end it wasn't very close. Had, you know, had it been very, very close, there would have been a lot more needle between these two characters who were very different. And then, then David was an absolutely brilliant shadow Home Secretary. And then much to my fury at the time, he went and resigned, having won the point about not incarcerating people for 90 days. He went and resigned and called this, called this by-election, which uh, I think was a great mistake. And you know, had he not done so, he would have been a very brilliant Home Secretary. Because, you know, I've, I've come to the conclusion as I got older that what matters about a Home Secretary is not whether they're Tory or Labour, but actually whether they have decent instincts. Because they're dealing with very important issues, you know, gay marriage, civil partnership, uh, abortion, um, the, the ending of the death penalty, the legalisation of homosexuality. These are all Home Office moral issues. And I think you want, above all in the Home Office, someone who has those decent instincts, not whether they're Tory or Labour or Liberal, yes. but they actually hold decent instincts which you can respect. Uh, do you think the current Home Secretary has decent instincts? Yes, I do. I think so. He's got an incredible, amazing backstory. Uh, I wasn't very keen on him when he was the Community Secretary because he authorised the building of 6,000 new homes on the Greenbelt in my constituency, which I objected to very strongly on behalf of my constituents, because it wasn't... I'm very much in favour of building more homes, but not in the wrong places. But, but, uh, but, I, but I, I'm, I will see. But I think, he's, I think he's got decent instincts. But I think that's the test of a Home Secretary, that, that, that they will do the decent thing and not, and not allow the mob or popularism to push them to a place where they, they, they shouldn't be. And actually, um, I'm going to try another uh, rebellion in the autumn, which is to stop uh, the state locking people up administratively. So they haven't committed any crime. They're about to be deported, perhaps, for more than 28 days. I think it is a breach of someone's human rights when they've done nothing wrong to lock them up as if they were in prison for more than 28 days. So, so, uh, so we'll have a crack at that and we'll see where the Home Secretary stands on that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So is that, is that, that must be quite odd for you as a former chief whip to sort of plan a rebellion. Well, the, the, uh, it meant that they knew it was coming, because I told them, and we had, a, <laughs> we, we had, and we had this amendment of 40 names yeah. for, the, for the open registers. Um, and we, so we had 16 Labour, we had the sort of Labour establishment on it, and we had 19 Tories. I wouldn't let any of the uh, younger Tories sign. 
because I knew the whips would burn them off. So I thought it would be better to have some of the old lags who would stand firm and believe in this. Um, and then we had the leader and the spokesman, relevant spokesman from the SNP, and the leader and the relevant spokesman from the Lib Dems, and Caroline Lucas, the Green. So this landed on the order paper, 40 names, and it was clear that we meant business. And the government spent the weekend trying to burn people off, didn't manage to do it, calculated that we would win by between 7 and 20 votes as long as the Labour Party got all their people there. Um, and uh, then they backed down. But they didn't back down until the debate had actually started. The Chief Whip came up the middle gangway to me and said, uh, uh, all right, we'll, uh, we'll let you have it. <laughs> and when he said, we'll let you have it, he meant the vote, <laughs> not the... <laughs> so it's always nice for politicians to have lives outside of politics and it sort of helps humanise people. One of the things you're very passionate about is animals. And your, your pet dog... Is an award winner, is that right? Was... Yes, I mean, the, 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 she's not our current. We have a Welsh Springer Spaniel called Scarlett who is contemplating competing in the Westminster Dog of the Year this autumn. <laughs> but we, her predecessor, Molly, won uh, in 2009. She, she had previously refused to take part on the grounds that it had been won by a pug. But, uh, <laughs> but she, won in, she won in 2009. And uh, since then, when colleagues are kind enough to invite me to go and speak in their annual dinners or at their dinners, I'm invariably introduced, and they say, um, uh, and he won the Westminster Dog of the Year competition in 2009. I always have to correct and say, actually, it was my dog that won. <laughs> me who won it. So how, what, what's the criteria for the Westminster Dog of the Year? Who decides? Well, you have to own a dog. And, <laughs> and you have to put your dog, uh, your dog, the owner gets asked some questions by people from the Dogs Trust yeah. uh, who run this competition. And the, win you know, the winner, the, my dog, got, uh, got more publicity that weekend than I would normally get in two or three years. You know? so, and uh, she was incredibly beautiful. And um, her picture adorned most of the regional press around the country. <laughs> so you have to be careful, because dogs, dogs are wild animals to some extent. They've been domesticated. They've got, well, they can, they can kick, well, they can kick off. I mean, you've got to be careful if you're an MP walking your dog around the constituency, haven't you? I mean, if it sort of barks at someone or, or if it... Well, well, you clear it up. <laughs> but uh, no, but my, my, the dog really belongs to my wife, who is incredibly strict and is sitting at the back uh, today. And uh, the dog is incredibly obedient when my wife is around. And so at the dog competition, so long as she is there, we can rely upon there not being any unfortunate incidents. So, so you're a bit of a soft touch? What, on dogs? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Actually, I had a, I had, um, a visit from... Uh, two of the people who run um, the, uh, an animal protection league about some legislation. I think they wanted uh, the parliament to stop these electric shocks that dogs get ah, from their yes. collars. And they came to see me all the way to, up to Sutton Coalfield. They're based in London. They should really have come and see me in London, but they, they made the, trick, uh, the trip, these two ladies. And so I said to them, you know, you shouldn't have come all this way. You could have seen me in London. But actually, now that you're here... Uh, I'm on your side. And they looked rather pleased and surprised. They said, are, are you really an animal lover? I said, I am an animal lover. And if I had supreme power at six o'clock in Trafalgar Square on a Friday night to entertain 
people leaving their offices and heading home, I would execute people who are cruel to animals. And That's not where I thought I was going. They look rather shocked. They look rather shocked, and then they, uh, they realise that I wasn't being entirely serious. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say, like, put on a Crofts type of <laughs> Welcome to this year's Crofts. Bring on the stocks. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a public hanging. Um, so, in terms of like, other live experience as well, I mean, Heathrow was a big, big vote this week. Um, and you talk about not wanting houses built on the Greenbelt, but Heathrow sort of is relevant in that regard, isn't it? That people don't want it in their backyard. People may, as a country, want it for the good of the UK economy, but when it's in someone's garden, it's, it's, not, as, um, it's not as desirable. Heathrow's also, you know, a big, big issue for the aviation industry. Um, you know, are there many MPs with aviation experience? Is it something that you have? Well, I've, I've, I've travelled on, because I, I was in the city before, and, uh, and, and because as development sector, I've travelled on a lot of aeroplanes. But on the Heathrow issue, I mean, the real the problem with Heathrow, and for this, uh, Mrs May gets considerable credit, because she has a constituency that is in the flight path, she's very much opposed to it, but actually she said, this is in the national interest, we're going to do it, and we're going to push it through. So she gets credit for, for that. Um, and, of course, it's appalling that we've taken so long. The, the, in France and in Amsterdam particularly Schiphol and, and on your, they just laugh at the way we cannot get our act together. We need this airport and we need it as soon as possible. So, you know, it's very important that it gets built. Thank goodness Parliament finally made the right decision earlier this week. But, but I've, um, I mean, I've, I've, I'm not a, I've never flown a plane like that, but I, I have spent a lot of time on planes, fortunately, uh, relatively safely. Although there was one occasion when I did uh, get rather a shock. I was travelling, it was in 1982, I was travelling from the East Midlands Airport on a very small plane with about 16 seats down to Heathrow oh, to join God. a flight off to um, Africa. And um, about halfway down, an air hostess ran up the, the, the um, gangway and started fiddling something at the back. And uh, the pilot came on and said, um, we're having a bit of trouble getting the, one of the wheels down. Uh, so there's nothing, no reason to worry at all. But, uh, we may have to wind it down manually. And, and I had this bloke, there was this bloke sitting on my right reading the FT. And I, I was comparatively new flyer, so, I, so he didn't seem to be very worried by this at all. So, so the flight continued and uh, there was more winding down. Then the pilot came on again and said, well, we haven't managed to wind it down. <laughs> Uh, at least we're not confident that we have. So what we're going to do is we're going to carry out a First World War manoeuvre. We're going to fly over the tower at Heathrow, and they're going to look up with a pair of binoculars and see whether they can see the thing is down, and then, and then we'll go and land. So we flew over the tower, looking out the window, and, and then uh, nothing happened. Then we flew back again, and the pilot said, well, there's no reason to worry, but uh, we can't really be sure, but... Uh, I'm just going to tell you about the brace position. And this bloke reading, this, this bloke reading the FT, beside me, was just continuing to read the FT. So I thought, well, maybe this happens a lot on this. <laughs> so, so anyway, eventually we came in. And, uh, you know, we were all leaning forward. And there was ambulances racing down and fire engines racing down. But the, the wheel held and we drew to a... And everyone looked frightfully relieved. Chap still reading his FT. <laughs> and so I sort of bunched his arm and said, Well, that was a turn out for the books, wasn't it? And he turned to me and he said, What? I'm completely deaf. I can't hear what you're saying. <laughs> the whole thing was like some sort of extended Brexit metaphor. It's a <laughs> bloody nightmare. God, that must have been no. I suppose after that, every flight you've had has been a lot. Has been a lot um, 
Well, I've never heard anything like that again. <laughs> no, but I mean, I suppose in a way, planes uh, a tricky experience. Your bike got you into trouble. <laughs> sort of got you into trouble. Um, I don't know, think about how to approach this bit. I wonder. Um, I wonder when you were. Going <laughs> yeah. So what I remember about it is that about the, the argument with the police officer where he alleged that you called him a pleb and you uh, maintained that he didn't, was, was the documentary that Michael Crick did with you, where it turned out that the member of the public that had apparently heard it actually was an off-duty police officer who wasn't even there. The CCTV supported your side of the story. And actually, David Cameron had been a barrier to releasing that CCTV that would have killed the story off. I'm not, I, I think I'm remembering that correctly. In terms of... What happened? Do you remember the, the, the incident, if you can call it that, that the argument came from? Well, the, the, it was a long time ago now, and I genuinely have put it behind me. So I, it's important to say that, because, you know, terrible things happen to lots of people. And in the end, you either become a bit like the sort of maiden arch hunting away in the corner of a family party, or you draw a line and you say you know, it's over now and we get on with our lives and, and we put it behind us. And, and as a family, because my family suffered greatly from that time, we put it behind us. And actually, David Blunkett said to me, uh, uh, you know, it takes three years to recover from these things. And it was three years from the trial at the beginning of this year. And uh, when he said that to me, I woke up the next day and I realised actually that I didn't think about it all the time anymore and it was gone. So, so I just made the point, it's a very long time ago, and throughout the whole saga, I remember uh, I was very engaged on what was happening in Syria at the time, as I still am. And, you know, I've, it's always helpful, I think, if you have these terrible events to know that there are people who are a hell of a lot worse off than you are. So, so I just make that, that point. Also, at the time, you see, in many ways, on an ordinary day, this tiny incident would never have blown up. But at the time, the government was involved in a huge row with the police because we were cutting their terms and conditions. And the government was involved in a huge row with the media because of the Leveson inquiry. Right. So, so I sort of led with my chin. And I always said I apologised because I roughed up, you know, I was, I was, they, they, they were deliberately blocking one of the three key ministers who works in Downing Street, Prime Minister, Chancellor Exchequer and the Chief Whip. Mm -hmm. They were deliberately blocking me, to, as I saw it, to, to, to make a point. So I remonstrated with them in forceful Anglo-Saxon terms. <laughs> But, but so I led with my chin, and, but that, that, was the, that was the scenario. That's why it went on for so long afterwards, because there was this very antagonistic period. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that after Crick, who is an absolutely brilliant journalist, did what you described, because it wasn't the police who discovered, although the guy went to jail, it wasn't the police who discovered this, or the state. It was the, it was the free media who yes. discovered it. Um, and who did the documentary, and I'm told that Cameron watched it in his flat and his jaw literally dropped as he saw that an off-duty police officer made this stuff up um, and, got, and got rid of his, his one of his, his chief whip. So, so, so at that point, I should just have left it. But I was so cross at the way I'd been treated, I put myself into the hands of the British judicial system, and that turned out to be a catastrophic error of judgment. So all I would say about it really is a long time ago, I'm still riding my bicycle. Um, <laughs> when people stop me in the street now, they don't stop me about that, they stop me about other things. Um, and it's in the past, so I think anyone who's still interested, which I doubt there are many people, made up their mind a long time ago whether I was telling the truth or I wasn't telling the truth. And, uh, and they made up their mind about what happened and mercifully 
It's hugely in the past. <laughs> I always thought, because at the time, it really played on this view that the government was run by sort of elite people who were, you know, and, and a, a level of snobbery was assumed. And I think that's what it really played to. I was quite surprised at the time that it did... That, uh, the other counter-narrative is people don't really like the police, and the police make stuff up, and if, it, if this can happen to a cabinet minister, it can happen to anyone, and Stephen Lawrence is still in the memory, and I thought actually more people would side with you. I instinctively felt, well, people are going to, in a way, despite all the class stuff and the Tory stuff, would think, actually, the police do this all the time, and it would, it would be a sort of counter-narrative, but that never really... Well, it did after the Crick stuff. Yeah. After the Crick stuff, it all turned, after the documentary. But before that, it didn't. You know, I mean, I had 800 emails over the weekend and you know we had we had 28 people outside our home in London we had 20 people outside our home in London eight people outside our home in Sutton Coalfields you know I mean which is which is quite it's, it's terrible for the family apart from anything else yeah. you said the chatter starts at five o'clock in the morning when they're there and then they push off about one o'clock when you're when you're if you're late back so 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 at the time uh, you're, what you say is true, but after the after the Crick documentary, the whole sentiment uh, changed after that. So the people hanging around inside your house, are they there with placards? Are they chanting? No, stuff? no, no, no. They're, they're there to get a picture, really. Oh, just um, paparazzi. Yeah, and journalists and so on, trying to get a quote or a picture. It's it's quite intimidating. I remember on one occasion we were coming back from the constituency on a Sunday, and my my daughter was there, and there had been some poor bloke in a car who'd been. Um, He'd been there for 24 hours with a camera, waiting outside the house to get a picture of me coming back. And um, the, 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 so my daughter, we're on the phone, she said, this bloke's still here, he's still trying to get a picture of you. So I said, well, look, we'll draw up, open the door, and I'll belt in the house. Mm. And uh, just as we drew up, he was having a sandwich, this fellow. And uh, so he saw us, and he got the sandwich, picked, tried to reach for the camera, but by that stage, I was in the house. And my, my elder daughter... Uh, took him out, uh, went out and banged on his window and said, uh, if you snooze, you lose. Would you like a cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to handle it. Because what, what, the two things that really, that really bothered me were, why didn't Cameron allow them to have the CCTV when you were saying, release it and it'll exonerate? Well, you know, it's a long time ago now. I don't, no. I don't just want to remember what the details of that were, but the... the um, the CCTV, there was, there was some, there, there was, there was some uh, suggestion which I personally thought was complete bollocks, that it was a security issue. But it seemed to me that legging over a cabinet minister was quite an important security issue. <laughs> it must have been an awful thing to do. And also I think we'd have got it in the end because we were determined to get it. And I think the Downing Street lawyers told the Prime Minister that we, in the end we would be able to get it through the courts because I was on it, I think. In terms of your colleagues, were most of them supportive? Well, they, they depended when you're talking about it. <laughs> after, after the correct documentary, yes. Very much so. Indeed, there was a debate in Parliament, which uh, I obviously didn't speak in, which went through all this stuff, which David organised, and where a lot of people on the other side too, people like David Lammy and uh, Keith Vaz and others, who, who are... Who, who, I mean, particularly David, who... I think we owe a lot to David Lammy, you know, because he's done a huge amount with all the Tottenham stuff and so yes. on to uh, make people in minority communities feel they have a representative, someone who speaks up for them. And um, uh, so there was a lot of that. I mean, at the time, you know, they, they, they looked as though the chief whip uh, was caught in a, in a considerable bind and there wasn't a lot of support, but it, it flipped over later on. 
How do you deal with that sort of thing? Do you just have to steal yourself with the, with the love and support of, you, of your family? Or? Yes, and also politics is, unlike most other trades or professions, it has incredible highs and incredible lows. And I, I, I've experienced both, uh, but certainly the high of being appointed to the Cabinet in 2010 um, by Cameron. Uh, particularly on a day where we knew that the Lib Dems were going to get five cabinet positions, and we watched them fall, you know, there were four, three, two, one, and what they could easily, I mean, I'm amazed that the Lib Dems didn't ask for Diffid, actually. Um, but, uh, uh, and then, after it was clear that they got their five appointments, I was going to be appointed, I was then called across. So it's a profession or trade with very great highs and very great lows, but, um, uh, you know, if you, you have to be, you have to be, a thick-skinned, and of course, we're none of us as thick-skinned as we should be. We all bleed, and we all pretend that we're very thick-skinned. But you do have to be—you do have to have a to go into politics. You have to be quite. And actually, I had a, an advantage in that way because my father was a member of parliament, and so I was able to see at one remove the pluses and minuses of of his uh, his profession. And for a period of time, you were MPs at the same time. We were for ten years. Yes, I mean, you used to refer to me as. My honourable and filial friend. That <laughs> must have been surreal to have... I mean, who do you think it's worse for, him or you? Well, I was always very respectful when... If I, I very rarely asked him a question, because the house used to erupt if I asked him a question. But uh, he used to have, I used to run a benighted agency called the Child Support Agency when I was a junior minister in 1995, 96, 97, at what was then the Department for Social Security. I have responsible, responsibility for this agency. And, and he had a whole load of, of cases which, which uh, were going wrong. And so he used to get up in the house and attack me for, what are you doing about this? I've got this case here which should have been dealt with. What is my honourable and filial friend doing <laughs> to address these important matters? So I used to sort of car at the dispatch box while everyone roared with laughter. <laughs> I mean, is it, did he encourage you to go into politics? Well, he wanted me, originally... He wanted me to be a wine merchant. We're a family of wine merchants, the Mitchells. Actually. Oh my God! And uh, so, so, so um, when I was about thirteen, I always thought I was going to go into the wine trade. And when I was about fifteen or sixteen, he said to me, um, "You know, you haven't got the palate. You know, you, 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 you're not. You can't distinguish between wines. Your, your palate's. Your palate's. Well, sixteen, seventeen. Sixteen. Say so your palate's useless. So, so what you should do," he said, "is you should go into the city." Because none of us know about money. You go into the city and work out about money. We all know about wine, which you're clearly going to be useless at, at <laughs> differentiating between one wine and another. So I went off into the city, and then I got suborned by the city, and then I got suborned by politics. But, but actually, uh, he was right, because until I was about 40 years old, I have no idea how this happened, but until I was 40 years old, I could not differentiate between wines. And then at the age of 40, I started to... Notice the things and red and white. in his <laughs> that sort of thing. But and then, and in his old age, he, he 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 passed away about four years ago. But in his old age, actually, it gave him huge pleasure that at long last his son had started to develop a palate and could start to converse with him um, about the merits or opposite of, of of red wine. So because wine is one of those things. I've always been a, a lager drinker until fairly recently. <laughs> <laughs> But I have started drinking a bit of red wine more. Um, and I, I wish I knew more about it. Cause it not only is it, is it sophisticated, actually, it's nice to know what... So if... In terms of like a, in terms of like a blagger's guide, what are things that I should say in polite conversation or in a, in a wine merchant that would... Get, well, he was... My, my, old, my dad, he, you know, in his day, yeah. 
he would he would sniff uh, a wine from the Bordeaux area, claret. Yes. He would sniff it and he would tell you on the nose what year it was made. And then he would taste it. And if he didn't get the right vineyard, the right chateau, he'd get the one next door because wow. the terroir, the earth and the, the um, subsoil and so on would be the same. So he was, he was absolutely brilliant. But there's a bluffer's guide on wine, you know. You can, you can buy it and you have to put your nose in the top and say it's, it's very... It's a very interesting fruity taste. If you mention the word raspberry, you won't go wrong. You know, so. <laughs> un unusual, unusual taste of raspberry here. You say it's very dry. In fact, you're, you're easily able to bluff your way through. And you look for legs, don't you, when it sort of drips like that? Well, that's for its youth, yeah. yeah. If it's got good legs, it means it's going to last a long time. And uh, it's still got plenty of age. So it may mean you're drinking it too soon. Maybe. <laughs> that's such a good... But now you... I mean, you probably would. You'd have a lot of knowledge from him, really, wouldn't you? You'd... Latterly, yes, but it was all wasted before because, you know, he'd given me something to drink and I wouldn't be able to tell him anything about it. So, <laughs> so but, but uh, latterly, yes. And, you know, one of the things I miss about him now is that, is that I, I know that we'd be able to talk about a bottle, extremely boring for everyone else, but for the two of us, it would have been a, a, a very a, a fruitful and fulfilling conversation. Fruitful, uh, sort of raspberry, um, <laughs> I, I believe, is, is yeah, in yes. season. Um, and what are good years... So, uh, in terms of good years and bad years, is that specific to the region? Well, on, it, 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 not entirely, but on okay. Claret, the yeah. greatest year that's quite tired now is eight, 1982. Yeah. Probably the best year in the last 100 years, 1961. Um, but it's very... I, we drank the last bottle of 61 on my wife's 50th birthday. Um, well, the so, last one ever. Well, our last one. <laughs> yeah, um, it's 82. And then since then, th there hasn't been any outstanding years really since 2000 and 2009, 10 and 5. They were the last sort of really good years. I mean. So, so there, there are, yes. And, and then you've got to judge whether or not you're going to, if you keep it too long, so it's over the hill, you won't get the benefit of it. So what, in general, how long should you keep a wine before drinking it like <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it depends entirely. It depends. I mean, if you, if you now, if you go to Majestic and you go to any of the supermarkets, they have the, their, the wine quality of the wine is extraordinarily good because they won't put their name to stuff that, is, that you pour down the sink. Mm. So, so actually, you know, if you go to, to Tesco's or to Sainsbury's and you, and you ask them about a wine, I've got the best, in my constituency, I've got the best wine selection in any Sainsbury's in the country, one part of my constituency. Some coffee. So, yeah, yeah, so I don't know why, but they say that they, it's obviously a very discerning constituency. <laughs> but, the, but, but uh, you know, and people's knowledge of wine in Britain is greatly escalated now because the supermarkets take so much trouble with it. And, and there's this thing, I don't want to obsess about booze, but the, this whole thing about English champagne, which we'll be able to call it after we leave, but the, this whole English sparkling wine, and is it nigh timber? Yes, I think that's the best, actually. People have said that it's as good as champagne. Yeah, I think it is the best. I, I, I think if you leave it for a couple of years, the trick with champagne, with non-vintage champagne, is to keep it for two years, because it gives it a little bit of bottle age, and yeah. it makes it a nicer drink, I think. And nigh timber is... Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of them that are very good. Lord Ashcroft owns, a, needless to say, owns a sort of <laughs> British champagne uh, house. But... Um, uh, Naya timber is, is, I think, extremely good, very minerally, it's a very good taste. Is it true, if you put a fork in a bottle of champagne, <laughs> it will keep it, it will keep it fresh for a bit? I'm afraid that in the Mitchell household, there has never been any champagne left. <laughs> 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 
But would it would it work? It would, I'm told it does. Yes, I've never tried it. Because uh... there's a great story of of um, Noel and Liam Gallagher, and Noel Gallagher, Liam comes down to Noel's house and notices that there's a champagne bottle with a fork in it. She says, oh, "What's all that about?" He says, "Well, if you put a fork in it, it stops it going off." So the following week, I went round to Liam's house, and he's got all these bottles of milk with forks in it. <laughs> 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 so if you put a fork in anything, it would keep it uh, keep it fresh. Uh, let's open the floor up to questions. So, um, oh, well, we've got one of the lady at the front. Jules will bring the microphone round. If you let us know uh, your name, and uh, if we can ask for one sentence questions, one sentence answers, I'll try and take as many as possible. So, the lady down the front, please, Jules. Uh, thanks. Hi, Andrew. Um, it's been really interesting hearing from you tonight, so I feel kind of bad asking this question. Um, but in the David Davis leadership election in 2005, there was quite a prominent image of, um, which I'm sure was prominent for many teenage boys at the time, of Double D Davis. Um, and I just wanted to understand, I guess, how that got approved and whose idea that was, because I'm sure you'd also appreciate today how unacceptable that would be. Do you know, we arrived in Blackpool, we arrived and I saw it, and I nearly fell through the floor. Uh, David saw it, was absolutely horrified, and he was on camera when he saw it. So he had to make a split-second decision whether to run over and tell them to go away or get cross with them, or try and bat it away, and he chose the second. But we none, none of us knew. It was someone freelancing. And it was, for the reasons behind your question, extraordinarily damaging, because it made us look... Which was a danger anyway. It was very old-fashioned, out of touch old-fashioned bad Tory, you know, so it caused great damage and funnily enough Matt mentioned it when we were in the green room beforehand so I mean it's people remember it and uh, it was never authorised at all. So for people who don't remember it was two young girls in double D for me uh, with David Davis who he might have looked shocked on one camera on other cameras looked delighted. Well he had, I don't think he did look shocked on the camera because he had to make an instant decision whether to create a bigger issue out of it. Yeah. Um, or whether to uh, try and hope that it was ignored. So, so he didn't look shocked on the camera, for the reason I said. But we both of us instantly knew. I mean, we made lots and lots of mistakes. But we both of us instantly knew that it was a disastrous uh, image. OK. Uh, yes, uh, let's... Oh, yeah, that does help. Yes, the lady right at the far end, if that's all right. Hello, so um, obviously, Andrew, the, there's a bit of a reputation going around that the Tories can't get the youth vote. Um, as a um, Shire Tory who has just admitted to blocking house building in your constituency, what are you doing to court the youth vote? Well, you're quite right. We have got, we have got a significant because problem. Because we have quite a housing crisis, by the way. Yes, well, so on... on so that's really great that you want to block houses. Just well, let's, 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 <laughs> let's be... <laughs> Let's, let's, let's be clear, I do not want to block houses. I completely recognise the, the, the difficulties. It's not your no, no, I, I mean, we, were, we were very clear when the whole community opposed the building of the houses on the Green Belt that there were alternatives, and we set out what the alternatives were. And uh, there was an opportunity to build far more than 6,000 houses if you used the brownfield sites in Birmingham, uh, if you embraced the idea of a garden city in the black country, which we particularly wanted to do, and if you allowed for sensible infilling, rather than just dumping a huge amount of concrete, uh, which was a Labour plan initially that had always been set up to sort of tease the Tories in Southern Caulfield, and was then waved through by a Tory Secretary of State. So we were very, very clear the whole way through that this is not about nimbyism, it's about building them in the right place. And of course, you know, the housing crisis, the three things the Tories have to do if they have a chance 
of winning the next election are to deliver a sensible Brexit, stand up for the benefits of capitalism, why capitalism matters, and thirdly, to do something about the colossal intergenerational divide that exists, of which housing is one of the leading elements. And there's no doubt about that, but it's about building them in the right place. It's about building houses for ownership, houses for part ownership, more houses for rent, building not just dumping blocks of housing in places where there isn't a community, but building communities as well. And, and that needs to be a huge priority for the government. I've said in Parliament, when I was opposing the 6,000, I made it clear I want to see a million houses built in Britain over the next three years. So I'm very clear about that. And I'll tell you something else. The young people, when I talk to sick formers in my constituency, um, they, they are furious about Brexit. They are furious about intergenerational unfairness, particularly on housing. They recognise that we have a... Uh, that my generation didn't have to pay university fees, whereas they, they do. They're also extremely worried that if, if, if health costs are funded by national insurance, that's the working population, them, who will have to pay for the older people now, who use 80% of all the money they've spent on the health service in the last year or so of their, their life. So I'm very, very conscious of the importance of, of uh, tackling these inequalities, starting with the housing inequality, but I just make the plea that you have to do it in the right place. And if you don't do it, if you build on the green belt when you don't have to, no one will trust you when you're trying to build houses in other places. And, and the danger with that is you, you will be opposed in a country where planning permissions take a very long time to get through. You'll be opposed at all quarters. So when you say you're going to protect the green belt, you really need to stand by that promise. I'm just saying reform the planning laws. You might have a better chance of getting re-elected with an actual majority. Well, we will need. We will. There are there are there are many barriers to be overcome before the next election, but but uh, certainly housing and reforming the the planning laws, making sure we build houses, but in the right place, is right up there. Uh, I completely agree with you. Okay, uh, the gentleman just down there in the middle. Hi, slightly slightly lighter topic, I guess. Um, you see, you're very clear that you are in favour of the prohibition of electric shock collars for dogs. But would you support the fitting of such a device to the current foreign secretary? <laughs> um, I think I think a collar wouldn't be a bad idea, but probably not an electric one. A collar, a muzzle would be handy as well. Okay, there's a couple up on the balcony, um, so we'll take those. And the final one, obviously, will be the best question that we've ever had. So, um, so decide amongst yourselves. Well, so I was actually not going to ask a question. My mate really wants to ask one. So uh, I just wanted to say that I think you've been doing really good work with regards to trying to uh, create public registries in the overseas territories. And I think it's gone kind of under underappreciated when it's so important with regards to what can go through those. And my friend does want to ask a real question. Well, it's, it's, I'm glad we had to go through your spokesman first. It's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> People start bringing their agents. <laughs> All right, pop him on. What is it? <laughs> so, um, the best question of the night. I don't say that. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier that you thought David Cameron was a great prime minister. Um, I just want to know what your opinion, what you think about what his, what his greatest legacy is from when he was in power. Uh, bearing in mind that the civil partnership thing, most of his party, party did not agree with that. So what do you think his greatest legacy was from when he was in power? 
Well, I think just to... Can I, can I answer both of them? Of course. So, so, so on, on, the, on, the, on the second question, I think that uh, he gave, by and large, good governance at a very difficult time. If you play back to 2010, you know, the, the economy was in a very bad way. And he started a trend, which finally worked about three months ago, of making sure that our current expenditure is met by our current income. So, so I think he took some very tough economic decisions, and those are now, or those have now borne fruit, to, at least to that extent. I think also you made the point about um, about uh, gay marriage and civil partnerships and so on, and I think. We forget how contentious that was, although you rightly acknowledge that, the, that within the Conservative Party there was a lot of hostility to it. And I think, in a way, that, that is a sign of leadership, you know, the fact that he pushed that through. In the, in the 2010 election, Jeremy Hunt and I wanted gay marriage put in the manifesto, and that was not agreed by the Cabinet and the Planning Committee for the manifesto. I think that was a mistake, uh, because I think if it had been in the manifesto, one or two people might have peeled off, but vast numbers of Tories would not have felt that it had been sprung on them from a, a clear sky. So, so I, I do think that you know, he showed considerable leadership in, in uh, leading that through and getting that through. And he would say, I mean, his, his memoirs are being, going to be published next autumn, not this autumn, um, probably wisely. Um, but I think he will say that that, that was one of that social reform was one of the things he was most proud of. Uh, on, on the registers, thank you very much. I mean, it is a contentious issue. There was a 1,000 people who demonstrated against it on the British Virgin Islands, um, uh, uh, including, including revealing that one of Margaret Hodge's ancestors had been hanged for some offence many uh, years ago on the British Virgin Islands, which certainly came as news to her. But it is, it, it is, it is contentious. Um, and the reason why, because they've had hurricanes in the Caribbean and the British Virgin Islands, a lot of the structures there have been knocked down. So because of that, we agreed that it should be postponed till December 2020. But bear in mind, that provision on open registers, which we embrace in Britain now, is going to be the law across the whole of the European Union by December next year. So, so it ought not to be as controversial as it has turned out to be. And uh, it will certainly be very controversial if we try and force the Crown dependencies to do it. But at the end of the day, these 14 overseas territories and three Crown dependencies, they, they, sh they, they share our Queen, they travel under our flag, and they need to accept our values as well. Andrew, it's, uh, for the final question, it's a question that really arguably has been the biggest political question of the last maybe five or ten years. What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly isn't running through a field of wheat. <laughs> and unfortunately, I can't remember, so I can't pass the time. There's so much... Boo gets it. <laughs> this isn't the Labour Party. There's so, much, there's so much competition. Invite me back in a year and I'll tell you. <laughs> well, I mean, there must be not one from childhood? Teenage years? Well, it's de as I say, it's definitely not the wheat field. <laughs> I mean, it's it sort of tantalised. It sounds like you've done something really serious. I don't think it sounds like that at all. all right. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing at all. There you go. I completely misread it. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, thank you very much for coming down. We will be back in September. Uh, the new guests are about to be announced. I uh, can reveal that in October it's going to be David Blunkett, which I'm very excited about. And um, we'll be back in the summer. As always, thank you so much for coming down. But for now, please give a huge thank you to the wonderful Andrew Mitchell.
Well, there you go, Andrew Mitchell. What a treat of a guest. Uh, so, to so many people afterwards who were absolutely buzzing at having seen him live. And I think one of the great thrills is you get these snapshots of people, particularly politicians through the media, and we form these quite hard opinions of them, one way or the other. And, of course, people are far more complex than just the one story we know them for or the piece of controversy. Uh, and he showed himself to be, as he is, uh, a very caring man, a, you know, very funny, very warm, um, and, of course, immensely hurt by the experience that he went through. And it's just a reminder always that whatever the next political scandal is, whatever it involves, there are human beings at the heart of it who aren't just the scandal that they're going through. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a wonderful reminder in the good that is in politics, even when sometimes uh, they're known for things that, that are less positive. But his passion for international development was absolutely clear. And it was an impressive defence, I thought. Not that I necessarily agreed with all his defence of the uh, Conservative administration under David Cameron, but a, but a thoughtful uh, defence of it, nevertheless. Um, but the audience really warmed to him. You can, you can really sense it when you listen back to it. As always, you can email the, the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Ed Napton has got in touch and said, I love it when you talk about more of the day-to-day goings-on in the Westminster bubble that ordinary people don't get to know about. Uh, well, Ed, I consider myself to be a normal person, uh, and I love getting those insights as well, so I always try and get that peek in, you know, take us round the cabinet table. And that's what I loved about Andrew Mitchell, that story about Ken Clark. And you can, you can really visualise Ken Clark pushing his cuffs out and deliberately pushing his time. Uh, he says, if it means your conversations go over the hour mark, it might be an idea to release an additional podcast with extra bits as a sort of bonus episode, like, have I got a bit more news for you? Um, I reckon, and it's a good idea... I reckon that's too much admin, Ed. I'm just going to keep it simple and just if they're long, I'll release them long. But it's a good idea. Maybe at Christmas. Why Christmas? Like as an extra treat. The thing is, doing a sort of best of bit would involve me going through and editing them. And I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, Matthew says, the podcast length is always spot on. It's always natural. I loved the Owen Jones one. I have to say... I've had so many messages about Owen Jones on email uh, and uh, uh, text from friends and tweets. The reaction's been great, and I'm so pleased because, as you would imagine, Owen is someone that I've really been keen to sit down with and just talk politics anyway, regardless of whether it was recorded or not. I know he was brilliant, and uh, I'm so pleased people have, have enjoyed it. So thank you for that, Matthew. He says, you need to stop finding humanity in so many Tories, though. My hate is subsiding. Well, that's good. Hate is not healthy for you, Matthew. It raises uh, the heart rate, it raises blood pressure. It can lead to an untimely and early death, and that's the last thing I would want for you or anyone. And it's good sometimes to understand where your uh, uh, adversaries, I was going to say enemies, that's far too strong a word, but people you disagree with are coming from. Uh, Matthew gets in touch and says, Hi, Matt. I really enjoyed the longer pod with Owen. Really interesting to hear about his feeling of isolation with the media. Me and my friends are coming to the party in November. Hopefully it'll be a great one. I listen in the Northern Quarter in Manchester. Yes, mate. One of my favourite places on earth. What a cool city and what a cool part of it. Well, it will be a great party in November. Thank you for coming. Um, there are always... The shows do sell out quite early, but there are always a couple of returns on the day. So do check my Twitter, at Matt Ford. Follow the other palace 
on Twitter as well and follow the other Palace website because there's always ring the venue on the day uh, if you want to really um, try your luck thank you for all your um, texts emails and comments you can buy tickets to my brand new Edinburgh show Brexit through the gift shop at edfringe.com it starts on the 1st of August we're going to take a break from the podcast until then uh, because in July I'm uh, gigging around the country getting the show ready but in August I will do two special political parties uh, one on the 9th and one on the 15th I think and you can buy tickets to those if I've got the dates wrong, do just double check. Um, you can buy tickets to those on the Ed Fringe website as well. I can tell you, just confirmed, and this is very exciting, the guest on the 15th is John Swinney, the former leader of the SNP, Scotland's Education Secretary. That is very, very exciting. Um, so, And the guest will be announced soon for the other show as well, but I've got a number of people that I'm talking to, and that, that is a great thrill. So, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you to all of you that leave the reviews. It does make a difference in helping it reach other people. So if you enjoy the show, that is a, a small free way that you can, you can repay the pleasure and enjoyment that this show gives to you, <laughs> if that doesn't sound too peculiar. And if you could, hit subscribe. Encourage your friends to do so, because the more people that listen, um, th- that's the whole point of it, is to just spread this as far as possible. So thank you very much. I will see you in Edinburgh in August for now. Have a wonderful summer and enjoy the World Cup. I mean, I would love to talk about the World Cup more on this, but oh my God, isn't it wonderful? See you in August. Bye.